This is In-House Insiders, a podcast from the Association of Corporate Counsel, where you'll hear from the most interesting in-house legal professionals in Australia. On the show, we'll explore their stories, the challenges they've faced along the way, and the lessons they've learned that have defined their careers. I'm your host, May Ramsey, and I'm the Group Executive Legal Governance and Regulatory Affairs at Medibank. In today's episode, we're speaking to Tree Newing, the General Counsel and Company Secretary at IncoLink. Tree has had an incredible journey throughout his life. Growing up in Vietnam in the 80s, Tree's parents wanted a better life for him, so they placed him and his brother on a fishing boat, and the two of them made the harrowing journey to Australia, where he would eventually become South Australia's first Vietnamese graduate lawyer. Today, Tree will take you through the dangerous journey that led him to Australia, what it was like in Australia for a refugee in the 80s, and how the early challenges he faced have influenced his career. Okay, let's dive in. So Tree, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Not at all. I thought we could start off by getting to know you a bit better. So could you tell us a little bit about your career up until now? Well, I've had a fairly diverse career. I spent about four and a half years in private practice, working in a uh, very small to medium-sized suburban firm, uh, fairly much a left-wing firm, doing a lot of plaintiff work. It was quite a really good introduction to the law. It has been in a small practice. You're sort of expected to do virtually everything. So from civil to commercial to uh, criminal, family. So it gave me a fairly general background in the law. After spending four and a half years, I was starting to do a little bit more commercial work and realized that it was a little bit restrictive in terms of being in a small suburban practice. And then there was beginning the midway through the dot-com boom, I suppose. A friend of mine was an in-house lawyer and he suggested I consider taking an in-house role. Then a role came up an ISP. Obviously, being in the middle of the dot-com boom, there were a lot of internet service providers out there. So there was a role for me there. So I applied and there was beginning of my in-house career, really, in the early 2000s. Then I spent about two and a half, three years there. And again, during that period, it was quite a um, heady days in terms of uh, lots of mergers, acquisition, a lot of companies being listed. So it was quite an exciting period, especially if you were first time joining the in-house space and then left that role. Then I spent a few months doing another in-house role at uh, a grain and bulk company before an opportunity came up to uh, move away from the city. There was opportunity to join, again, another ASX-listed forestry company in Mount Gambia in South Australia. The incumbent there was actually an acquaintance of my law school. He was a, a mad surfer, so that's why he moved to the country to be uh, near the surfing. Then until we did the first interview and we connected because I was a fairly keen surfer myself. So essentially the job was mine. <laughs> as soon as we found out that we were both from the I suppose the surfing tribe, the interview was quite easy for me and um, I managed to to land that gig fairly quickly. So that company was Allspine Limited. I spent eight years living in Mount Gambia in that role as first legal counsel and then chief legal officer and company secretary. And then obviously being a very competitive market, there were a lot of mergers, acquisitions, takeovers, etc. And Allspine was a very attractive asset for other competitors of ours. So I was in that role for about eight years until it got taken over through a very aggressive uh, takeover bid from Guns Limited. And I came across to Guns as part of that takeover as general counsel. 
but it's one of those things where the company grew too fast and had too much debt and tried to take on too many things and they didn't succeed. So sadly, the role came to an end. But you know, I had a fantastic time during that, that period. I wouldn't change it for a thing. After guns, I spent a little bit of time doing some private practice, a sort of moonlighting. Then an opportunity came up to uh, join a federal government agency, the Indigenous Land Corporation. Now, I've been fairly fortunate in, in my life, having been exposed to First Nation culture at a very young age in primary school in South Australia. So I had innate interest through that process. For me, it was just a natural progression. I already had an interest in that. So I joined that as their general counsel and managing a, a team of four lawyers. We did some fantastic work in terms of providing land grants and land management grants to uh, indigenous corporations around the country. So I was in that role for about four years. We did some, some amazing work. Again, the role requires a fair bit of travel. I had a young family. The role was based in Adelaide. I was based in Melbourne, so I was constantly traveling between the two states and also to Canberra a fair bit. It was more Melbourne-based to settle down. And so an opportunity came up in Victoria for a company called Inklink, based in Cowden, which is where I am now. So I've been with Inklink for about five years now. It's been an exciting company to be in. So that's pretty much my career up to now. True. That was absolutely amazing. I was just completely captivated by your description of your career to date. And I think you've taken the title General Counsel to new heights. I could not think of one thing that you have not done in your career to date, and you've still got a very long career ahead of you. I want to come back to some of those career highlights, but maybe before we do that, I also understand that you've been on quite a journey prior to coming to Australia and that, in fact, you arrived in Australia as a refugee from Vietnam in the 80s. And I was hoping you could tell us a bit about life in Vietnam before coming to Australia. My father was from North Vietnam. My mother's from the south. They met each other in the south of Vietnam. I grew up in the country. We were rice farmers in Vietnam a family of two older sisters, an older brother, and two younger brothers. Largest family, but typical size in Vietnam when you're a rice farmer. Life was fairly difficult in Vietnam. A lot of other refugees from all different nations would attest to. It is a third world country. We were struggling rice farmers and living in a communist regime. And so the future was fairly dim, especially during the Cambodian War during that period. Vietnam has gone through decades of war and centuries of being invaded by other nations. I mean, Vietnam was occupied by the Chinese for over a thousand years, followed by the French for nearly a hundred years. In actual fact, it was the French that gave us our Roman alphabet, whereas before that we were writing with Chinese characters. So the country, I would say, I mean, is having been in that position, always living in war-torn scenario in many ways. Yeah, and so I've had cousins and family members who have been compulsory listed to join the army. Many didn't come back. And so for my parents, that was the future for their older sons. Because when you, when you reach a certain age in Vietnam, you get sent off to the border and your chances of coming back are fairly slim. And so my parents uh, made a fairly difficult decision to organize for us to escape for, uh, by boat. A bit like me, my role now, I would call myself, I'm a jack of all trades in, in the legal profession. Whereas in real life, my dad was a jack of all trades. He was a political lobbyist, manager of a band, he was a carpenter, he was a rice farmer. 
you have to be multi-skilled when you're living in a country like that to be able to survive. You have to do everything you can to provide a living for your family. And so my dad was pretty much that. So he had a major role in building the fishing boat that we escaped in to leave Vietnam. It's an interesting story because we had a river right in front of our house. A few months before we left on a trip, we had no idea that we were about to leave. My dad started taking us down to the river to swim. Again, we thought, oh, exciting, let's go for a swim. And so he made us do that every single day. So looking back, that was his way of teaching us to swim just in case something serious were to happen to us at sea. We left uh, Vietnam by boat. I have very vivid memory of having this afternoon luncheon with my family, my aunts and uncles and, and relatives. And then my parents, during that luncheon, my parents pulled me to the side and said, now you are about to go on a long journey you are going to go with your aunt and uncle. And that was it. And then we quickly uh, left that afternoon. It was a very surreal experience. I remember following my aunt and uncle through the jungle because we were living in the country. And be very discreet going to, and sort of like almost hiding between bushes as you go along. For me, it was, you know, as a seven-year-old, it was just one big adventure. I remember just hiding, getting on a bus, and then getting off the bus, a lot of people were just jumping off the bus and following us or we would follow others and then we'd be hiding behind bushes until late into the evening. And then somebody would come along and tell us and they would be rushing out to another spot. It was all fairly exciting as a young child. Then, you know, my aunts and uncle would drag us running along through the rice field through the swampland until we found this little fishing boat that then took us onto a larger fishing boat waiting further out. And it was pitch black. I was looking back and I saw all this lightning and fire and crackle. I didn't know what it was until I was told later that they were the communist officials discovering that we were escaping and were trying to shoot at us. Luckily, I didn't know much about it at the time. It all seemed like such an exciting process to go through. So that was our first escape out of the country. So we went on a small fishing boat that my dad had a role in making. We were packed onto the boat like sardines. There was over a hundred of us and the boat was fairly small, would have been about, I'm guessing, seven to 10 meters. It's just, I don't know how you could cram that many people, but if you look at some of the old footage of the seventies and eighties and the nineties of some of those uh, refugee boats, and even of late, you see the amount of people that are crammed in, in those boats, quite amazing, very treacherous. So that was me in one of those boats. We left the shore and then not soon after leaving shore, the engine failed including the, uh, the auxiliary engine as well. So we were literally just drifting. As soon as we got out there, we were drifting for 17 days, running out of food, running out of water. Got to the stage where we were using salt water to uh, cook congee, which is that rice soup. So that, that's what we were rationing on, because you're basically just drifting. We drifted through past the coast of Thailand, and we were robbed by Thai pirates seven times. A few of them tried to sink our boat as well. Essentially, those guys were basically just Thai fishermen, again, living in, in poverty and seeing all this boat going past. There was an opportunity for them to try and, you know, it was circumstances. I wouldn't call them real pirates, but they were taking an opportunity, again, to make a living out of robbing other people, probably to feed their family. Because a lot of these people on refugee boat would carry gold and other precious possessions with them. And so it was right for picking, in a way. We drifted, we got robbed by Thai pirates seven times. My elder brother nearly had his uh, finger chopped up by one of them. I remember that clear incident where 
the pirates were on the boat they had asked a lot of people to go to go onto their boat so our boat would be completely empty and they would go through and ply out all the wood panel in case people would hide precious materials in there my brother and i were the scragglers we haven't gone across to their boat yet but we were thirsty and so my brother tapped on this pirate's uh, arm asked for doing the gesture to ask for water and he turned around and just used whatever uh, instrument he had uh, nearly chopped my, my brother's uh, finger off so that was quite a traumatic experience there's one incident where we thought that we would be rescued a, a very big fishing boat came and we thought we found heaven to be rescued so they got us on board gave us fresh water gave the kids lolly and then next moment you hear this gunfire in the captain's cabin on the roof got everybody's attention they start lighting us up one by one strip search took whatever possession we had after we've all they've gone through everybody chuck us back on our boat and pretended to tow us but instead they sped up at a great speed to pry the bow of the boat off and so it actually almost came off so that was another attempt to, to sink us but we managed to survive we patched it together managed to survive you know, we lost a couple of people on the boat we had two brave young men decided to build a raft to try and find uh, rescue we never heard of them again sadly yeah so we basically just drifted onto the coast of malaysia obviously back then in the 80s so i left vietnam in 1980 by boat during that period the unhcr was um, very prominent there was a massive international refugee program and so refugees were quite welcome all around the world during that period so we drifted onto malaysia and by then there were obviously many boats before us and so there was already a program set up and so as soon as we drift onto this beach in malaysia and, and then it got me thinking that that's why my dad wanted us to go swimming every day we all had to scramble off the boat and try and make way to, to shore and as soon as we got to shore there were ambulances and obviously the local people uh, saw us and so had called the authorities and then we were given fresh water food to drink we were properly processed and then went to um, a refugee camp called Pula Bidong. A lot of Vietnamese people would remember this island specifically to cater for all the refugees back then. So we lived on, on Pula Bidong for a couple of years. That's where I learned English, yes, no. <laughs> and everybody would live there, gradually be processed to be accepted to countries like Canada, the US, Australia, New Zealand, you know, some of the main countries, some European countries as well didn't have any contact with the family during that period so I basically just lost contact with the family for that couple of years and my family actually thought that we had perished prior to that we had lost an uncle at sea on a similar trip never heard of him again my parents actually thought that they've lost us at sea but luckily we managed to make contact with them a few years later as a young child there's always things to do around the island some of the exciting memories I remember were the island was infested with rats and so there was an incentivized program where if you catch training rats then you can exchange that for a can of condensed milk and back then a can of condensed milk is heaven and so for us for my brother and i that's what we spent time doing on the island exploring every part of the island and you know catching rats and so on living conditions were really poor essentially shanty town tins and plastic sheets for your roof and so on there were a lot of people on that island some have been there for quite a number of years because they haven't been able to be processed or got, got accepted into other countries. Some would try to escape again, just feeling desolate and feeling 
you know, obviously can't go back to their country, but nowhere else to go. And so psychologically, you know, the, 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 the well-beingness of, of a lot of those people was fairly dire. There were a few suicides as well, but gradually uh, you're patient enough, eventually you get, you get accepted. I was lucky, you know, or we were lucky. We got accepted into Australia. And one of the, I suppose, the vivid uh, image that I remember and the story where those who have been accepted to Australia was, you never felt safe until you know that you've been accepted and you've actually gone to another country because living in, in Pula Bidong, you're in no man's land in many ways. You haven't got a country, you're waiting to be accepted. And those who have been accepted to Australia said, no, when you see the red flying kangaroo, then you know you're safe. And so when it was time for us to go to, to leave Pula Bidong and to go to Malaysia, to the airport, we were looking at the airport for the sign of the red kangaroo. <laughs> so good old Qantas, for me, it was safe. Thank you so much for sharing that, Tree. I mean, I just can't imagine what a childhood like that would have been. But the fact that you've been able to recount it and share that experience for all of us to hear is so generous and courageous of you. So thank you. I'm so glad that you and your brother made it here to Australia and that you got to see that red kangaroo and that having arrived in Australia, obviously that in itself would have been another experience and another environment. Yeah, it just made you realise when you, you've gone through that process, you never take things for granted. Because I, I, I'm part of the mentoring program with the Corporate Lawyers Association. Tell my mentees, grab your career, grab whatever you do with both hands and do it with conviction. You have certainly exemplified that. And are you happy to move to talking a little bit about your time when you first arrived in Australia in those early days? The first memory is really getting off that plane, coming from Vietnam where you're living, you're surrounded by bamboo forests, you spend your days harvesting bamboo shoots or, or riding the buffalo, all that's exciting. You're surrounded by greenery. Again, on Pula Bidong was very similar, another tropical island. And then getting off the plane and all you see is this grey, cloudy, overcast. It was a bit of a confronting scene. It was cold, it was grey, it was overcast, it was concrete everywhere. So that was my first vision of Australia. I remember at the time I was trying to compare that because when we were living on the island, every now and then they would show us documentaries about New Zealand, Australia, and you see these farmers, you know, grazing cattle and sheep and hay and people skiing in the mountain. So it's all this magic fairyland from my perspective. And then I had that image in my mind. That's what I was expecting. So we landed at Melbourne Airport to see this concrete jungle as opposed to lush forest. It was quite daunting and quite scary at the time. And the weather was freezing. But that's Melbourne, which I really love. <laughs> we stayed in Melbourne for about three months before we uh, got processed and we moved to South Australia in a specialised shelter or area built for a new uh, arrival. It was an old army barracks in Pennington in South Australia that we were allocated um, dormitories. And, and, and we lived there until we were able to find private accommodation. I learned English. Growing up in that small community, my guardians at the time were very keen to make sure that we maintain our culture. And so I would spend Sundays and Saturday going to Vietnamese school. It was a very close-knit community. Saturday, Sunday, going to Vietnamese school, joining the Scouts, joining the Eucharistic group. 
learning all the skills, doing Morse code and sewing and going camping. It's quite exciting. And then during the daytime, you go to school. And again, there was a lot of camaraderie because a lot of the schools I went to, um, my first primary school was Mount Carmel College. There were a lot of other immigrant kids from different walks of life. We would stick together. That was our safe harbor in many ways. Learning English had very, very generous and kind teachers all throughout my career. In fact, one of my first English teacher passed away last week. I remain in touch with her because in my culture, teachers are very revered. They're almost your parents outside home. And so I was conscious of the generosity that they provide me in, in terms of teaching me English. So I, I made a point of maintaining contact with her and her family. It was very sad that she, she passed away. But for me, I appreciate people who have contributed towards my development, my upbringing. I wouldn't call it life was easy growing up in Australia. Again, there was a lot of racism. I'm sad to see still around today. When you're new to a country and people don't know you or know your culture and fear and uncertainty and ignorance makes people behave in strange ways, to put it politely. And a lot of us would be subject to that. But at the same time, it strengthens your resolve. You want to make sure that you belong to this country. Heads down, bums up, as they say. Study hard and do what you can. That was what motivated me to prove to some of those people that, hey, I belong here too. And this is how I do it. As I was saying before, growing up in Australia, encounter a fair bit of racism. I will put it down to sheer ignorance. On that topic, I'm very passionate about acceptance. We define ourselves in reference to others, in reference to the community we live in, the culture we belong to, and there's diversity everywhere. That's what I would encourage people to do. Go out there, experience, get a better appreciation of different cultures out there. The analogy I would put to it is if you look at a corn, if you peel it, you've got the individual kennel. The corn itself, you look at it, it's a corn. That's like the world. We should look at the world as the world. The corn is a corn. And when you peel the layers off, you get the individual kennels. And that's where you build reference, your sense of identity, either a political circle that you revolve in, a serving tribe that you belong to, a culture that you're part of. So the individual kennels are like that. But at a helicopter view, you are inhabitants of this planet. That's how we should look at it. So true, Tree. It always fascinates me that for some reason, some people feel the need to focus on our differences, which to be frank are incredibly minor and mostly only skin deep, rather than seeing that we are all one human in humanity and that the similarities that we share whether it's the passions, the emotions, the loves, etc., are all the same. I think I'd like to move on, if it's okay with you, about your into your legal career because we heard about your amazing career to date and the breadth and the depth. But I'm interested to maybe start with why did you decide to pursue a career in the legal industry? My actual interest was science. I'm very passionate about science. Um, I think that these days they call it STEM. I did a science degree. I was always interested in facts and figures and how things work, you know, the physiology of things, the biology of things. In the 90s, as you know, if you're a scientist, you would appreciate that getting funding or grants for your project was very limited. I mean, it's sad that we don't have the, the same level of funding as other countries in terms of 
you know, I suppose I'm talking about state and, and federal government support here and for, for R&D in, in this country. And we're losing a lot of talent that way, by the way. My first degree was a science degree, majoring in physiology, and uh, I loved it. But realizing at the time that there was really not much of a career in, in science financially. Obviously, I came to Australia. I was given a golden opportunity to make something of my life. And so naturally, financial security is a motivating factor. You have to work very hard to try and get the career you want to get the financial security to look after your parents, look after your family. And so career-wise, the financial security was the driving factor. At the time, I realized that the law could offer me that. And so I did my first science degree, got enough mark in my first year to then apply to do law. So back then, you have to do a due degree at the University of Adelaide. So I was completing my science degree as well as doing law. And looking back, I don't know why I made that decision apart from seeking financial security because English was still a foreign language to me. And can you imagine a, a refugee kid jumping in, into doing the law? It was very daunting, very scary. But I made that decision. It's one of those things where you made a decision and you've got to put your heart and soul, put your best foot forward. Unfortunately, because of the workload, I wasn't able to continue with my honours degree, but I completed my science degree. Basically, just focus on finishing the law degree. That is an amazing achievement. And I think a really good salutary lesson to some of us who have had the benefits of being born and bred in Australia and English as a first language, and here you are, you've overcome so many barriers to graduate and then go on to such a stellar career. What did it mean to you to be the first ever Vietnamese graduate lawyer in South Australia? Well, I've made my parents proud. That's always been the driver, whatever you do. But also opening up, I suppose, when you live in a fairly small, tight-knit Vietnamese community, I always felt like I wanted to explore outside that, which is why I took up surfing, which is quite an unusual thing for a Vietnamese kid to do back in the early 90s. So, yeah, I just wanted to break away from the traditional route that a lot of my friends have done in terms of the medical profession or the engineering or allied health in general. So for me, it was to be the first to do something quite completely different. But it was quite a personal achievement for me, knowing how difficult it was to make that decision and to do something that's completely foreign as a concept in general. And so it was a very proud moment for me. But with that came a lot of pressure because when you're the first, you get bombarded with requests and pressure to do a lot of things, which as a young graduate was quite difficult to handle. You paved the way, Tree. Amazing. Definitely. As people always say, for anyone to achieve, they need someone to look up to and someone who is like them. So whether it's Vietnamese, refugee, whether it's a woman, whether it's someone with some form of other diverse background, being able to see people pave the way just makes all the difference. Definitely. You graduated, which was fantastic. You then moved into private practice, as you mentioned earlier, and did just an amazing breadth, I'd have to say, of work there. Your description of your day just made me feel slightly tired when you explained rushing from court to the office to mediations, etc. But you would have learned, as you said, an amazing amount. Somehow you moved or drawn to in-house. What was it that enticed you away from that busy private practice to move into in-house? A lot of my in-house colleagues would relate to this. So when you're in private practice, you see a client come in 
They tell you your issue. You try to give them a solution if you can, and then they disappear. You never see them again until they come back. Oh, I've got another issue, and so it's that disconnect that was really puzzling for me. But apart from the billing, which I didn't really really enjoy much, <laughs> private practitioner would be like to the pressure of maintaining that billing target. For me, it was more about doing more and more commercial work. Doing more of those work might be realized. You know, there's this whole world out there that are transacting all the time. I wanted to see that other side of it to be a part of that journey. I've I've had some long-term clients, and you call it your family lawyer, where you have perennial client that you will assist. It gave you an opportunity to see how they've gone through their lives and their business ventures and so on. But I wanted to see more of that. That's why I thought when my colleague told me, "Hey, you need to go in-house. You actually see." The behind the scenes, behind the corporate veil of what's happening out there, that was a great buzz, a great attraction. To be as in-house lawyer, you're there at the seat. You get a seat at the table. You're part of the machinations of the entity that you work for. You're there at the beginning or the inception of a concept, of an idea, of a marketing plan. Help strategize. You're there to provide the risk assessment, the legal framework. You're there to execute the plan. You're there when it fails. You're there to litigate when it goes horribly wrong. It's a complete beginning-to-end process as an in-house lawyer that you have taken in the company's journey. So for me, that's an exciting bit. It's quite a rewarding process because I'm able to use my skill set in a more general setting. That's the main attraction. I think you've just written our intro for in-house counsel because really you've encapsulated it so well there, Tree. We'll have floods of applications of people coming from private practice to in-house. One last question just about your career. When you look back on everything that we've discussed, do you think all of those challenges, both the trip from your homeland, Vietnam, through Malaysia to Australia, but then also the acclimatising to Australia through to being the first graduate Vietnamese lawyer. So many fantastic milestones that you've achieved. Have they helped you overcome other challenges in your career? Have they prepared you for that? Definitely. It's character building. As in-house lawyer, sometimes you are the enemy within. You are the internal obstacle. And it teaches you because you are there. You've got to sit at a table. You're there debating, arguing over a very difficult decision. And so you've got to have fairly thick skin and very strong character and conviction, albeit knowing your limitation, knowing the moral boundaries and so on. It just adds to your character, your ability to improvise, to put yourself in an uncomfortable position and gradually feel comfortable in it, to build relationship, to build rapport with people from all different walks of life. They're the life skill that applies in every other setting. The key I took from that was be able to work in high-pressure environment, to be able to solve very complicated situation on quite a number of occasions. It gives you a sense of self-confidence that you don't realize you have when you are in that high-pressure environment. So when you're working under that sort of high-pressure, intense-pressure environment, you'd be amazed at your internal fortitude and the skill set that you've acquired as black-letter lawyers. All of those skills... They just come out in those environments and it just teaches you to actually have faith in your own ability and you'd be surprised at how capable we are as in-house lawyers because our role is quite a unique role. We have massive responsibility and in what we do has consequence, 
not only for us as an employee of that company, but for the company itself. From what you've described, Trey, your character is the most outstanding one that I've come across in a long time. So thank you for sharing that. Now, I thought we'd make a change of pace. I've got some quick fire questions for you. So the idea is I ask them, you just tell me the first thing that comes to mind, and then we quickly move to the next one. So the first question is, if you met your 21-year-old self, what advice would you give them? Do not change a thing. Do what you can and do it with conviction. Whatever you do, do it with conviction. Fantastic advice. What's one skill you really had to develop through your in-house role? Patience. That's great. Where do you go to upskill? There are many legal resources out there that's freely available. The Australian Corporate Lawyers Association, the Governance Institute, the various law firms that gives out free newsletter. Uh, they never used to be free. And also the in-house training session. So my advice is always keep an eye on what's out there. Subscribe to various news feed. Spend about five minutes a day just scrolling through it. Just get a gist of what's happening. And as you say, you only need to have five or ten minutes a day just to keep on top of what's going on. Who's someone you really admire? Oh, my father, my wife. What's one item on your bucket list? I've been chasing the tuna barrel for quite a number of years, so <laughs> that's probably the most immediate on my bucket list. I'm a mad fisher. Well, I hope that you manage to tick that one off soon. What's your favourite hobby? Surfing. Wonderful to hear you're still doing that, surfing that is. It's very important. As I said before, our line of work is very stressful. You know, as I say, healthy body, healthy mind. So keep yourself fit and you meet your internal or your work challenges. So where do you go surfing, given that you're now in Melbourne and you're not in Mount Gambia near the waves? Yeah, it was such a dream living in Mount Gambia. It was half an hour. I could go for a surf in the morning and then go to work. But now I go to Barwon Heads, 13th Beach or Torquay, that region about an hour and a half. So I just go on automatic pilot and just get down there and get in the water. Yep. Maybe some of our listeners might come across you next time you go for a surf. I might see them. Yeah. What are you reading at the moment? I'm reading an interesting book. The name escapes me now, but it's all about how to win over your audience, just taking them on a journey, get them to have ownership in your idea, your concept, so that they are part of it. So that it makes the sales pitch a lot easier. It's not just you trying to impose something on them. They have to be part of the journey with you so that they can contribute to whatever concept that you're working on. Some more great advice. And if you remember the name of the book, text it to me. I will. <laughs> and then finally, what's the first thing you do when you get up in the morning? I just basically just lie there, do all this joint exercise to make sure I'm loose. Get up, go for a run or hop on a bike, exercise first and then a nice breakfast and then off to work feeling uh, happy. Great way to start the day. Well, thank you, Tree. This interview has been uplifting. It's been moving. And I heard you say very often throughout the interview how lucky you were and fortunate. And that is true to some extent, but I think that you've also made your luck and that you've grabbed those opportunities that were given to you with both hands and you worked really hard and you have excelled at everything that you have done. So you are, as I said earlier, an inspiration for not only for the young and upcoming lawyers, but for us older ones as well. So thank you, Tree, for joining us and sharing your story. My pleasure. I'm sure there are many other colleagues who are well-deserving. 
You've been listening to In-House Insiders, a podcast about the stories, challenges and lessons learnt by Australia's top in-house legal professionals. In-House Insiders is produced by the Association of Corporate Counsel. ACC's purpose is to support the professional and business interests of in-house counsel through information, education, networking and advocacy initiatives. I've personally been an ACC member for 15 years and I continue to remain a member for the fantastic peer networking opportunities I get and the access to tailored CPDs that cater for every stage of an in-house lawyer's career. If you're not a member already, you can join me and over 45,000 other in-house counsel from around the world. For more information about ACC or to join, please visit the website acc.com. This has been In-House Insiders. I'm May Ramsey and I'll speak to you next time. Music